Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. So hello everybody, welcome to Espresso Martini. So on today's episode, we are going to focus on the appalling October the 7th attacks in which the designated terrorist group Hamas launched a violent and bloody attack focused on Israeli civilians. The official death toll from October the 7th as of time of this recording is 1,300 with a further 2,800 wounded. 22 of those killed were American citizens and of this recording 17 British citizens are still feared dead or missing. So today for the sake of clarity we're going to kind of do our best to break this episode up into these areas. So we're going to start with sort of what happened, then we're going to go into who Hamas are, then we're going to look at the kind of the geopolitics of it and the alleged role of potential outside support for Hamas. Then we're going to look at the Israeli response and, and alleged intelligence failures. And in the final section, we're just going to look at the kind of the reactions and lack of reactions to what happened on the Internet. So before we get going, Matt, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to say before we kind of get going into the sort of nitty gritty of things. Sure. There's a lot I could I could say about this sort of attack. I, I think it just goes to show you that the sort of chaotic nature of global politics and how, you know, I always say the nature of the universe is things happen gradually and then all at once, you know, um, um, I don't think any, anybody, anybody outside of, you know, Hamas, the Iranians potentially, um, expected this to come as viciously as it did. Certainly the Israelis weren't expecting it. And we'll talk about that more, um, but really just kind of a, a truly shocking kind of scale of the attack and the tactics involved, which is if you read what Hamas has written and has said about how they view the state of Israel and just Jews in general, it's not surprising. But to see them adapt tactics that are, I mean, right up there with, with ISIS in terms of just depravity, barbarity, violence... Um, I mean, I was, so I spent the last couple of days in, in, in DC, but I, I said to, to contacts of mine there that I was meeting with that. I, I think this is really just an attack that's, that's beyond politics or even frankly beyond terrorism. Mm. It's, uh, and you will talk about the, uh, reaction of certain factions of, of, of the left to this in a bit, but it, it's just beyond war, uh, beyond it's, it's not armed resistance, against an occupying force at all, how how one can mm, sort of make mm. that claim is just completely uh, unconscionable to me. And of course, I um, you know, I get back yeah. from DC and I have a bit of a cold, so if I sound a bit different today, I I I, uh, I apologize. I'm a bit I'm a bit sniffly. No worries, yeah. Matt. Well, I, I could empathize. <laughs> I mean, Matt has the cold this week. I had it, I think, maybe two episodes ago. I've lost track now. My how the tables have turned. Yes. Yeah. It's that time of year, isn't it? Cold season. Oh, <laughs> yeah. my goodness. Well, um, I hope you've got plenty to drink there. So I've, I've got plenty yes, more for me. I got my water. Good. Thank good. you. Good. That's all right. Well, uh, just echoing what you've said, I mean, before we kick off, I do want to just say how appalled I am at what happened on, on October the 7th, the, um, the sheer scale and method of violence directed at civilians, mainly just Jewish civilians 
is just wrong and there's no way to justify what happened. My thoughts do go out to the victims, family and friends and colleagues. My mind also goes out to those who are injured. They're probably people sitting in hospital right now who are nursing all sorts of dreadful injuries, probably life-changing ones. And also to those who've been kidnapped and who are held in captivity as we speak. I mean, the um, just the imag imagining that scenario and some of the videos that I've seen of people being taken, you know, a woman being dragged by her hair out of an SUV, yeah. Uh, with her hands tied behind her back and stuff. I mean, the the level of fear that those people must be going through, if they're even alive. Um, and and so, yeah, this whole whole thing is just so horrible on so many levels. Um, and uh, yeah, so so we're gonna try our best to kind of unpack what happened. Um, and give people uh, a rounded picture of, of of the whole whole thing as best as as we can. So, um, so on that note, I'm going to go us uh, take us straight into sort of what happened. I'm drawing on articles from the BBC, the Guardian, the Times of Israel, and the Washington Post, and I'll do my best to outline what happened. Okay, so everybody, bear with me. There's a few bits here. So um, on Saturday, the seventh of October, Hamas militants bypassed Israel's smart fence in a coordinated attack, a surprise coordinated attack. The fence was breached at 29 points and Hamas militants encountered little resistance. The border was minimally staffed and Hamas used drones, rockets and explosives to breach the fence. Hamas militants infiltrated Israel through tunnels, paragliders and an attempted sea landing and they attacked civilians and military positions in multiple locations. Within the first couple of hours, more than a thousand Hamas troops had crossed the border into Israel in approximately 15 to 30 locations. They overran at least four military camps and they spread out across more than 30 square miles of Israeli territory. They entered two Israeli towns and 12 villages at least, driving through the streets, shooting at passers-by and breaking into houses to kill the residents. It is in those villages in which some of the true horrors of this day took place. First of all, many people were killed in cold blood. In some instances, it has been reported that Hamas militants would live stream their victims' death via their social media. It's also been reported that some of Hamas's victims were raped before being killed. Even children were forced to watch their parents being killed before they were killed themselves. That's also been reported. Later, Israeli security forces found that many of the victims had been beheaded. And of those beheaded were babies and children. Not only that, but some of the babies were even set on fire. So let that sink in. Babies and children were beheaded and their bodies were set on fire. And this has now been confirmed as there has for a short while been a dispute online about whether the babies were beheaded or not. But I would like to think that the killing of children would kind of be enough. Um, yeah. You know, whether they've been beheaded or not is kind of more semantics, I suppose. But there we go. Hamas militants also targeted the nearby Supernova Trance Festival in southern Israel, resulting in one of the group's deadliest attacks. The festival took place just five kilometers from the Israel-Gaza border, and um, gunfire erupted at the festival, causing panic among the attendees who fled the scene. Attendees took cover and were hunted down and killed by the militants. Some survivors managed to flee on foot or by car. Some had to hide under dead bodies and in bushlands until help arrived. More than 260 bodies have been recovered from that festival site. 
Uh, one survivor, Gao Levy, who was 22, managed to escape the attack but was shot in both legs and doesn't know if he'll walk again. Levy told CBS News that he waited six hours for help and he feels let down by the government and he feels let down by the army. He said he lost something like two litres of blood and he was really sure that he was going to die. Dashcam footage has also captured Hamas militants kidnapping a man from the festival site, as well as other people. Uh, one such person who's also been kidnapped was a 25-year-old named Noah Agmani, and she was kidnapped by Hamas fighters. And there's a terrible video that I've seen, and I'm sure other people have, where she's screaming, don't kill me, don't kill me, as Hamas militants kidnap her and take her to a fate unknown. Because I don't believe we know at this time if she's dead or alive. I've looked, but I couldn't find anything to, to confirm that. And, you know, poor old Noah has every right to fear death, as there's been videos of Hamas militants parading bodies of Israeli civilians in Gaza. And, um, you know, we have no idea how many more who were taken have been killed. It's reported that at least 150 Israelis have been kidnapped by Hamas and taken into Gaza, supposedly as human shields. Video has shown of those kidnapped includes children and elderly women. I saw a video of uh, a kidnapped child being taunted and physically abused. And I've also seen a, a video of that, I mentioned before, that poor girl who got dragged out of an SUV by her hair. And there's also um, a video of this old lady being driven around as if she were a prize. And some have speculated as to whether that old lady might have dementia. And I do wonder quite darkly whether that might be a blessing or a curse at this point. So, Matt, I will hand the floor to you to any thoughts or observations on, on, on what transpired that day. The word intelligence failure has been sort of thrown around, but I think it's a lot bigger than that. I mean, it's an intelligence failure for the Israelis, sure. It's an intelligence failure for us in the United States, and it's an intelligence failure for the Egyptians, for the Jordanians, for the Qataris, for the Saudis. Um, just across the board, you know, that an attack of this magnitude that involves over a thousand Hamas fighters mm. could breach the the fence in that separates Israel from Gaza and you know it seems at somewhere between fifteen and, and thirty different points and could hold territory in Israel for 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 twelve hours at least, you know, before before um the IDF uh responded. But I mean it, when I say it's bigger than an intelligence failure, it's for that reason. I mean if if a thousand Hamas fighters at least pour through the fence, gaps in the fence. Even if the IDF, Southern Command, which is, you know, responsible for that part of Israel around Gaza, even if they didn't have, you know, sufficient warning, um, there should still be forces there to sort of blunt that, you know, to, to blunt those incursions. And if they weren't able to do that, it was really kind of stunning. Mm. And I think we just haven't quite grappled with with that i think also there is i'm just kind of thinking off the cuff here there seems to be quite a disconnect between i don't between how this attack has been covered in the west or at least in the united states i don't know if it, if you would if you've seen the same thing in the in the uk chris there's kind of a disconnect between how u.s media kind of sees bb netanyahu's government and their response to it and how israelis themselves see the response to it i mean i saw a poll Somewhere recently, they said as much as 80% of Israelis see Netanyahu and his government is kind of, I mean, I don't want to say responsible for it because Hamas is responsible for this mm. at at the end of the day. And I think it's important that we don't get sort of muddied in, in, in yeah, who we see as, as responsible for this. Mm. At the end of the day, it is Hamas mm. that is responsible for mm. this. 
But 80% of Israelis apparently see um, Netanyahu's government as as letting them down, yeah. you know, kind of shattering that idea of, of security that they've had. And if you, if you look back at history, I mean, this is about 50 years removed from the Yom Kippur War, where um, Israel was similarly caught off guard and surprised by an attack mm. by its enemies mm. in the region. Mm. I mean, there's a great disparity in forces between then and now. I mean, the combined armies of what, Egypt, Syria, backed by the Soviet Union, is not even remotely the same as, as Hamas. And it's um, other affiliated Islamist militias in, in, in Gaza, not even close. But in the aftermath of that, Golda Meir, who was the prime minister of, his, of uh, Israel at the time, uh, she was gone within six months of that attack. Um, and of course, it was replaced by uh, Menachem Begin, which led to the Camp David Accords shortly thereafter. I mean, I'm not saying that, that we can expect, you know, such developments to follow this. The circumstances are completely different. The world is, is completely different. But um, there's been reporting over the course of the last summer, plenty of it from people inside the Israeli uh, intelligence and, and, and military circles saying how, you know, the, the protests and the, and the divisions within Israeli society that were sort of prompted by Netanyahu's return to government by his, by his very controversial uh, judicial reforms, mm. how they were putting Israeli security at risk, how they were sort of leaving Israel blind to 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 threats by its neighbors, and it, it certainly seems that that those warnings were were true and went um, unheeded. You know, it seems that many of the IDF units that were in the south um, were sort of redeployed to 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 the West Bank to deal with unrest in the West Bank that was sort of caused by uh, Netanyahu. I'll say it frankly: his stunningly racist and corrupt government. Um, bulldozing Palestinian houses to make way for expanded um, settlements, and I think, I think Israelis are are right to again. Hamas is responsible for this. It's entirely on 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 Hamas, but I think Israelis are right to sort of question that you know their government just staggeringly let them down. You know, there's twenty. We've had so Hamas has been in control of Gaza since since two thousand six. Um. We've had upwards of twenty, going on twenty years of of um, developments around Gaza, the border fence, all the sort of security measures that have been put in place um, to to prevent this exact scenario from happening, and it failed completely. And I'll say one more thing here, and then I'll get it over to you. Um, this plan that we saw uh, Islamist militants coming over the fence. And and holding territory in Israel, mass slaughter of of civilians. That plan is not novel. Um, it's not something that was beyond the imagination. Um, it's a plan that has been uh, widely uh, uh, discussed in in think tank circles and and elsewhere um, for 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 many years mm. but it wasn't supposed to come from gaza it was supposed to come from the north from uh hezbollah um and i think that's what sort of uh another thing that's really interesting about this it's a it's a a i mean this has been sort of called israel's 9-11 and i think that that comparison is certainly warranted um i think in this attack and in 9-11 it both boils down to a failure of imagination mm. Oh, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, to see a failure of 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 imagination to consider 
what is possible mm. for your adversaries to 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 attempt and to succeed at it potentially. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, makes a lot of sense. And yeah, very true. One thought, just you your earlier question about coverage. Um, I found the coverage typically of Israel tends to be very basic unless you go to very specialized places or read beyond the an initial piece but it's a proper think piece you get a bit more detail there tends to be i'll say a, i'll generalize a little bit i say there's a bit of a popular view that israelis seem to all agree with each other which is not true at all um, and you know we've seen months of this protests and there was a commentator online an israeli commentator who made a, a very interesting observation that many of the victims are most likely people who were protesting against netanyahu just a few months ago um and and so gunning down those people is not really gonna help palestinian statehood in any way shape or form really yeah i i think to another point there i mean i i believe that and and and, and have believed that Meanwhile, I'm I'm no supporter of, of of Hamas, of course. I think anyone who listens to this would not think that regularly. Mm, mm. I, I do think that Palestinians have a right to to self determination, to to dignity and security, to have an independent state of their own, a homeland, just as Israelis deserve to have dignity and security and a and a homeland of their own. Um, that said, there is not a. I mean, this will probably ring truer when we get into the in, into the left's reaction to this attack. There is not a single Palestinian man, woman, or child who will benefit from this attack, not one. On the contrary, there are probably tens of thousands, if not more, mm. who will suffer directly because of this. Mm. Um, this sort of idea of an independent Palestinian state, I think now because of this attack, is unthinkable for a generation or more. This set the Palestinian cause back 40 years. So if you are sympathetic to the Palestinian people and and I mean this is not this is not the move to have made. No. And I said on an earlier episode my I've always had a bit of an issue with the should we say the Palestinian I don't know, Palestinian cause is that the right way to put it. So just to echo what you've just said I totally agree that the Palestinians should have their own land you know should have their own be able to govern themselves have the right to a decent life like any other human being should live in a society that supports any individual to have you know any ambition to go off and do what they like as long as it's not for bad um yet the problem is with the palestinian movement it's been tainted for decades by um, individuals who use dreadful violence and the topic that were on our previous podcast um that i mentioned as my example was the munich olympics of 1972 yeah and just the way that the not only did the uh, did black september capture israeli athletes who are quote-unquote civilians they then also um, treated them very brutally i think they cut the testicles off one of the hostages um and treated these people very brutally before finally killing them all um and is that kind of behavior it's not that's not alone look at the 1970s and 80s and the terrorism connected to the plo black september you know um what other groups are there the abu nadal group and various other ones all in the name of palestine it's not working well i would say um i would say hezbollah too in their treatment yeah, of yeah. Uh, of uh, robert stetham and yeah. um it was a u.s navy diver on a, a hijacked plane i forget the name of the flight off off the top of my head but he was tortured and his body was dumped on the runway yeah and that that was um then fictionalized in the delta force movie wasn't it if you remember that. yes yeah yeah, yeah. loosely yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, God, I remember when I first saw that as a kid, actually, that was a really 
brutal moment and it was slightly edited on mm-hmm. television but i remember that and there was also another film about the achille laro affair where uh, an older israeli um citizen played by um bert lancaster was in a wheelchair yeah. it's based on a true story and he was thrown off the ship and then shot uh, or he was shot and then thrown off the ship it might have been that way around um and i saw that when i was i don't know i was about 12 or 13 and this is the thing and and so a lot of people like to say that um we wrongly equate Palest- the palestinian cause with terrorism but the problem is that there are so many groups who are going out of their way to make us equate it with terrorism and mm-hmm. it's not working um i mean it's working in the sense of it's just killing lots of israelis and jews and if that's the point then they it's working but if the point is to bring about a state to bring about uh, peace to bring about prosperity this is not working nor and i'll just put it nor is bombing the crap out of gaza as well um no. you know or the west bank um i think bombing campaigns from the air generally don't work unless it's sort of a world war ii type scenario but when it comes to um urban conflict which i suppose this is what this falls into a little bit you need to be a bit more precise than just bombing the crap you can't just send in the b-52s this is where maybe predator drones are quite good where they just hang around for long periods of time and specifically find individuals sadly this is where then those dreadful assassination programs a bit like the wrath of god situation might come in where you pinpoint particular bad individuals and take them off the battlefield to use the american cia phrase that i've picked up from an interview somewhere um you know uh those sort of tactics tend to work better in these situations and i'm sure there are some lessons to be learned from the conflicts you know the wars in iraq and afghanistan that might help with those sort of tactics but um yeah this is just awful this whole thing uh, and it and i just don't see an ending so i could i can imagine right now you and i will be uh, if we're still doing this podcast when we're in our 60s 70s or 80s there'll be some other terrible atrocity connected to this um i can foresee that now yeah so yeah so it is really you want to add before we sort of move on to the next bit there. so i was in um i was in uh, I mean, we've we've talked about this. You're aware of my trip, but just so mm-hmm. listeners aware, I spent the last few days in um, D.C. I went down for um, David McCloskey, had a you know an author who I interviewed on here a couple weeks ago. Um, he had a book signing in in D.C. Uh, that I I went down to attend, um, and uh, you know used the couple days that I was there to kind of see mm-hmm. uh, other people that I was uh you know could could meet up with, haven't seen in a while. Um, and there's two conversations that I have with, with certain people that are pretty, uh, interesting. One of whom, um, is an old friend from, uh, college mm. that I have, um, who's done, I won't, uh, I won't get really specific about where he works. Um, I'll say it's, he's, he's done well for himself. It's at a very high level of the federal government. I'll say it's the highest level of the federal government. Um, and I, I had dinner with him the first night I was there and, um, he said, that that day was the worst day that he's had in the office since the Afghanistan withdrawal. Mm. Um, you know, American American citizens trying to get out, um, American citizens with relatives in in Israel, um, who will you know have call and say that they saw their relative on a on a some video that's been shared by Hamas on Telegram or wherever and has been making the rounds, and you know. What can you do? Can you can you get them out? 
And the answer is just like, no, there's not, there's, there's not much that, that, that you can do. Um, he asked me, uh, what I thought the chances were of getting the hostages out alive. And so I think, um, it's, it's been reported by the, um, state department that there's believed to be about, I think over a dozen American citizens that are being held hostage in, in, in Gaza that were swept up, you know, as part of, um, as part of the attack are now being held hostage in, in Gaza, somewhere between a dozen to about 20, I think. And, um, this friend of mine asked me if, if I thought that they had a chance of getting the hostages out alive. And I, first I thought, well, why are you asking me? But, um, then I said, frankly, I mean, I think unless you can broker a deal with the Qataris to get them out, um, no. Um, I think it's a tactical nightmare. Mm. Um, and just, frankly, the realities of this of this conflict, of, of the nature of where they're being held, likely in tunnels mm. under under Gaza. Building sites. Um, Hezbollah used to use building sites in Lebanon to hold people. Yeah. Um, I'm, trying, I'm forgetting the name of the CIA station chief. Um uh, Bill Buckley. Bill Buckley, thank you. Yeah, poor old yeah. Bill Buckley. I mean, he if you look at what happened to him. He was held for years. He was. They didn't know for sure where he was, but he was in all sorts of places, moved around. Yeah, I remember moved around for sure. The remember Terry Waite, the the priest who was captured yes. by was it Hezbollah, I think. And um, yeah. and he described being um wrapped up in, in tape to be moved from one location to another and in a compartment in a lorry and Yeah. You know, and these poor people be bargained with for eight, could be bargained with for years, you know. Could be for years, yeah. Mm. Could go on for years. Mm. Um, so I had, I had a very grim grim view about that. Mm. The other uh, person I met with the next day, um, his name's Philip Smythe. Uh, he's an old friend of mine. He's consulted on the novels, on, mm. on my novels mm. for, for years. Uh, for a long time, he was at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which is a you know big DC think tank that covers these things. Um, he's, he's kind of independent now. Um, but uh, I, I met up with him, and he's been following, you know, has obviously been following this closely. Um, he's a he's a outside of the intelligence community. I think he's like the expert on Iranian backed um, proxy terrorist groups. Mm. Um, he's an Arabic speaker. Uh, he's he's so he's inside these kind of internal WhatsApp group uh, signal signal groups that. Um, uh, Hamas members and you know affiliated kind of sympathizers used to mm, uh, discuss mm, amongst mm. themselves, um, and he was. I won't go into a lot of detail of what we talked about. I'm gonna he's he's gonna come on the show uh, early next week. I think I don't think we've set an exact date yet, but he'll he'll be on here early next week, and I think it's better for listeners to hear directly from him. Um, but some of the stuff he he shared with me. I mean, so now. Since our conversation, there's been kind of more evidence put out that, you know, babies were beheaded. Um, I think in one in one kibbutz uh, outside of Gaza, there was 40 babies that were murdered. Um, so this was the conversation that 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 Philip and I had was sort of before this information came out. Um, and he, he told me that the the stuff about the babies is absolutely real, um, that there are videos of it happening, that he's seen them. Um, and, and videos of, of worse things that haven't been, uh, 
reported yet. Mm. Um, I hope he's looking after himself. One quick thing. I mean, you know, yeah. look at all the things. Mental health is so important. I think even um, for me this week, I've really, um, I've, I've fluctuated between that image of uh, Pablo Escobar sitting alone deep in his thoughts to god knows what i just you know i feel being a bit all over the place this week with all this um and i haven't even i've purposely avoided a lot of graphic stuff i've seen a few videos of the kidnappings um but i'm trying to avoid seeing decapitated babies and things like that and um you know people need to be careful with what you look at i um i asked him about that i said Mm. you know he 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 had had a very rough few days philip did um, understandably, he said he spent most of the day before we talked, he said he spent most of that day throwing up, frankly. Um, and I, I asked him, I said, and I, I would like to get into this with him a bit more mm. when we talk on the podcast, because I think it's an, it's an interesting thing for, for people to hear about how this stuff is covered and how, I mean, OSINT now is such a big, such a big thing. Um, and he's been, Phil's been doing this for long before it was cool, you know, um, I asked him, you know, with these videos and stuff, do you have to see it to really understand what's happening? And he said, yes. Yes, you do. That if you're not, if you're not seeing it, you're not mm. really kind of doing your job to fully understand and process this information for you and I, you know, who just sort of follow this stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he can, he can say it a lot better than I can. You know, this is what he does. Um, but I, I think he'll have a lot of interesting stuff to share about, the nature of of Hezbollah. Um, more than that, just the quote unquote resistance front, which is mm, what the mm. the whole collection of militant groups that are allied with with Hezbollah, many of which participated in this attack alongside them, um, and the degree to uh, Iranian involvement in the attack, which is still kind of an open question, um, and something that I I think is really interesting that I haven't really seen reported before that I definitely want to talk to Philip about here on this podcast. Um, I think with this attack, it wasn't the motivating factor, of course, but I think there was a desire by Hamas. It was part of this rivalry between Hamas and and uh, Hezbollah, which, you know, Hezbollah has always sort of been seen as like the Iranians' golden child. You know, mm. they are much bigger. They are much more powerful than uh, Hamas, frankly, which is why it's important that they don't get involved in this war. Um, they're essentially a, a state within a state to the extent that I mean they're they're just they're just much bigger and more sophisticated than um, than uh, Hamas. But to speak to that rivalry between the two groups, I think and Philip kind of echoed this, and again he can say a lot more about it um, than I can because he's in he's inside these channels where they're where they're talking about it. There was a, a desire by Hamas to with the scope and the savagery of this attack to sort of knock Hezbollah down a mm. peg, mm. you know, that, mm. you know, they can do it too, that they're also really big and bad. Um, that's really interesting dynamic to this conflict that I would like him to speak to yeah. when I have him on. Yeah, just elaborating and echoing that point. I mean, there's an interesting thing. I, I didn't say it earlier, but obviously people commented on um, the similarities. You said it earlier as well about the the scale and the nature of the attacks and the tactics used by ISIS. And um, it's an interesting thing with terrorism. Like uh, the early days of Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda was seen as just these inept, bumbling buffoons for a bit. And then there was the embassy bombings. Then there was the USS Cole. Then there was finally 9-11. And the reason why these groups escalate is they're in competition for money. 
from donors and various other things. And so human nature is you're not going to invest in something unless you think they're capable. And if one group appears more capable than the other, then for your annual investment, you might consider investing in that group next year. Because with the um, with Hamas, you know, they're reliant on obviously um, covert state funding at certain levels. They're, they're also um, get funding from individuals, private donors in the Gulf states um, and expats abroad um, and probably possibly some dodgy charities and things like that. Um, so, you know, so that competition is vital for these terrorist groups. So, yeah, I can understand that kind of competition between Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, that sadly doesn't surprise me at that point. Yeah. And it explains a few things, I think. So we're going to go into who are Hamas, because I think um, there's all sorts of rosy pictures get painted. All sorts of information does get left out about who Hamas are. And I wanted to just take an opportunity to take a real look at a detailed look. And Matt, obviously, you can feel free... Um, to add extra details in case there's anything missing. There's two sections I'm going to break this up into. So first of all, I'm going to just unpack the basics of who Hamas are. Then there's a little bit, after after I've done that, I'll have come to you, Matt, and then after that, I'm going to quickly go to a piece by Bruce Hoffman in The Atlantic, where he talks about the um, Hamas's sort of charter, its founding covenant, that explains um, what their beliefs are as a group which you touched upon i think at the very beginning in your your uh, bit at the beginning right um and you know and the problem is with hamas um they do have a sort of genocidal aims and we'll go into that in a moment so let me unpack these bits um and and then we'll come back to you matt so bear with me but it's quite long again um so who are hamas so in this section i'm going to be drawing you know on a number of sources which we will link to in the show notes so hamas is a spin-off of a palestinian branch of the muslim brotherhood and it was formed in the late 1980s Hamas took over the Gaza Strip after defeating its political rival party Fatah uh, in elections in 2006. It's been reported that Hamas rule with a firm hand in Gaza and do not tolerate any political challenges, hence that there have been no elections in Gaza since they took power. The United States and the European Union have designated Hamas a terrorist organisation because of its armed resistance against Israel which has included suicide bombings, rocket attacks, um, and obviously the 7th of October attacks. And um, Hamas is a Palestinian organization with a complex identity encompassing politics, military activity, nationalism, and religion. It has a political wing which participates in Palestinian governance, primarily in Gaza, and that focuses on Palestinian nationalism. It also has strong religious roots associated with the Islamic resistance movement, incorporating Islamic principles into its ideology. Uh, Hamas also has a military wing known as the Al-Qassam Brigades, which are involved directly in their armed conflict with Israel. Hamas's aim is to end Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories and achieve self-determination. Hamas seeks to establish an independent Palestinian state run under Islamic law. In the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority governs, and it is the Anis Fatah who is the dominant political force there. Hamas and Fatah have distinct origins ideologically and strategically 
As mentioned, Hamas has Islamist roots, whilst Fatah is more secular and nationalist. And in Lebanon, you have Hezbollah, which is the Islamist political party, a militant group, and it is separate to Hamas. And the cooperation between them has been based on pragmatic needs, primarily against Israel. Apparently, after all that, Hamas is primarily financed by Iran, contributing to 70% of its funding, with additional support coming from Palestinian expatriates, global private donors and allegedly some Islamic charities in the West via Hamas-affiliated social services organisations. The US Treasury has frozen assets linked to those channels, and Turkey, under President Erdogan's leadership since 2002, has also supported Hamas, although it claims only to back the political aspect of the organisation. So, uh, yeah, so before I go into the piece by Bruce Hoffman that kind of goes into Hamas's founding covenant, Matt, is there anything you want to add to any of the bits I've just said there? No, I think you did a good job. I think it's 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 it's, it's easy it's easy for, for Westerners sort of looking at these mm. groups to sort of think of them as just sort of cartoonish kind of you know bad guys terrorist groups they hate us because we have freedom you know to you brought up you know the the delta force movie from the 80s which i mean a lot of those movies kind of famously portray these groups that way this is not to give groups such as hamas credit as all but they are terrorist groups but they're also a lot more than that this is true of hamas and also um hezbollah and even even isis at its at its peak um they're they're much bigger than just terrorist groups they are they function as sort of quasi nation states in the territories that they control. I mean, yes, they have an armed wing. You mentioned the uh, Al Qassam brigades. Um, yeah, that's 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 their armed wing. Um, there's various uh, charities and and social mm-hmm. and religious organizations. They run schools and 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 hospitals. Um, they provide goods and services to the people under which they rule with an iron grip. Of course. Um, you know, and for for a lot of these people, and I think this was true of of ISIS to an extent, um, in the territories that that they controlled after you know years of these people living under civil war, well, someone was able to to run trash collection services. You know, they weren't they weren't being extorted by gangs of of bandits anymore. You know, so that definitely kind of endears endears the population to them in some way is that, you know, they can there's that famous saying about Mussolini, say what you want about him, but he made the trains run on time, mm, mm. you know, or uh, um, Hitler was good with roads. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think if you if 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 we're to really understand what what enamors a population to such brutal mm, terrorists, mm. it's it, it's stuff like that. You know, they they are terrorists. And yes, they they control thousands of men, you know, many of which yet came over the fence and and decapitated babies and did did worse to those babies that I won't say on here. Um, uh, But but they also run schools and hospitals. Um, and I don't think we can fully understand these groups and and why they're popular. And we can't hope to then, you know, ultimately defeat them unless we sort of see them for who they are in totality, which is more than just crazy, bloodthirsty people with Kalashnikovs and yeah. RPGs. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, I'm going to go into this Atlantic piece by Bruce Hoffman, who is a professor from Georgetown University. And he outlines key points from Hamas's founding document known as the Covenant, which was published in 1988. Professor Hoffman believes that the document clearly points to Hamas's genocidal ideology that would go counter to any peace initiatives and believes that we should use this document to understand their intentions. 
So I'm just going to outline some of these key points um, and uh, come back to you, Matt. So mm -hmm. the covenant explicitly calls for the complete destruction of Israel as a prerequisite for the liberation of Palestine and the establishment of a theocratic Islamic state governed by Sharia law. It emphasizes the need for unrestrained and perpetual holy war to achieve their objective of eliminating Israel. The document dismissed any possibility of negotiations or resolutions or political settlements between Jews and Muslims in the Holy Land. The covenant also contains anti-Semitic rhetoric and conspiracy theories, including allegations of Jewish control over the global media, finance and secret societies. It draws heavily from hateful sources like the Protocols of Elders of Zion. The Covenant also uh, declared that uh, all of historic Palestine, including Israel, Gaza and the West Bank, was an Islamic waqif, which is a religious endowment and could not be compromised in any way. Um, and it underscored that every Muslim had a duty to engage in jihad against the Jews, portraying this as a religious obligation. The Charter was revised in 2017 and Hamas has issued a revised uh, version of it that appeared more pragmatic and the political language has been adjusted but it maintains its core objectives including the elimination of Israel and the return of Palestinian refugees. The revised Charter tried to distinguish between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism but remained unwavering in its refusal to recognise Israel's legitimacy. Hamas also rejected peace agreements like the Oslo Accords and committed to armed resistance as the strategic choice for achieving its goals. And the revised charter surprisingly claimed that Hamas believed in pluralism, democracy, national partnership, acceptance of others, and dialogue. So, yeah, so Hamas's charter kind of goes against the way a lot of people, I suppose, on the left like to present Hamas. Yeah, they're romanticizing of them. Yeah, and maybe a lot of people on the left just don't understand this or don't wish to understand this because there seems to be this sort of dominant way of thinking these days of just viewing everybody as either occupier or occupied or the perpetrator and the victim and it's just it's too simplistic for situations like this because again like if you look at the lens of power for a minute which again is this other area that people like to talk about people have power and people don't have power and this belief that people who have Hamas power... Hamas has power. It does. It, this is the thing. This is the thing. It, it, number Hamas one, has it, a lot of power. It controls the Gaza Strip, for crying out loud, and it prevents any other political parties or groups to form, anybody to being, you know, creating any political movement against their beliefs. They have power. They might not have ultimate power. They govern two million yeah, people. They might not have ultimate power, but they have power over the land that they've got. And sadly, I looking at their behaviour... If, theoretically speaking, that they did manage to control the whole of Israel, I don't think it'd be particularly pleasant for people who live there. No. No. I mean, that might be a controversial statement, but that, it just going by what I've seen so far. Um, so, so, I mean, Matt, is there anything uh, about the Founding Covenant or anything about sort of Hamas's ideology that sort of stands out for you? Or is there anything you want to say that adds to anything I've just mentioned there? There is nothing about, I mean, there's been a lot of, discussion on the left about, you know, decolonization and stuff the past few days. There is nothing about that founding covenant that sort of speaks to the dynamic of oppressor mm. versus oppressed. You know, I think it is, it, we talked about lack of imagination, you know, at the beginning of this and how that led to something such as 9-11 or, 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 or this attack. What sort of makes that somewhat inexcusable is read the founding covenant. They're saying they want to exterminate 
the state of Israel mm. and all the Jews who live there. And then we're shocked when they have the opportunity and then they do something along those lines. What is it? The thousands of people who crossed the border didn't give out flowers and they didn't give out copies of, um, I don't know, Marxists for beginners or anything else, you know? But to, but to sort of further that, they didn't cross the border and then strictly just target military personnel mm, mm. Or, or police officers who are, you know, who, who are armed and trained and, and are, you know, they sign up for it. They know the risks or they, mm. or they should, you know. They didn't just target IDF units. They beheaded babies. It's just, it's very hard for me to wrap my brain around that, like... I mean, I think there's probably just this very like totalitarian sort of black and white cartoonish views of mm. of right and wrong on the on the left. And this is true on the right too, mm. that there's oppressors and the oppressed, there's people, there's the underdogs, and you always gotta kinda, you know, root for them or something. But I think it's it's possible to sort of hold the belief in your head that I don't know that I entirely ascribe to this belief, but many people do, mm. so I'll voice it here, mm. that um, Palestinians have suffered many injustices over the years, that they've suffered under brutal occupation policies of, of the Israeli government. You can believe that, but then not use that as a permission structure to excuse the decapitation of literal fucking babies like what are we doing here, Chris? Mm, mm, I know. I, 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 I. My problem is I get very introspective and and wrap myself up in all sorts of weird intellectual knots, trying to freaking understand things sometimes. And I and I and I feel like my reaction, your reaction, is a natural reaction to what happened. It's disgust. It's it's. And yet there are people out there trying to tell me, oh no no, this is all fine. This is all part of armed resistance and blah blah blah. And it's like what the hell is going on with people what is that's going not on? armed resistance no what we saw on saturday is not no. armed resistance no it's not armed and, resistance and thinking widely for a moment like in at least talk about america maybe britain when you get a far-right politician like trump who comes in or or you could even um i don't know if you could call george bush um george w bush far right because everyone called him right no. wing he's neoconservative yeah and the problem is when you get those kind of presidents um you then kind of people on the far left get put on a bit of a pedestal because what they say reaches the anger a lot of people on the left feel and they kind of get this platform and and then bad ideas on the left get mainstreamed yeah and i feel like maybe in the trump years um and there the thing is there are we can't throw the baby out of the bathwater completely there are injustices there are racist issues there are all sorts of um issues that are valid that need looking at about sort of racism and power structures in society. I can't totally say there isn't that. I wish there wasn't, but there are issues. But at the same time, just using that as your overarching kind of paradigm, um, I feel like Russell Brand said it were, but that overarching, your overarching sort of paradigm there to understand the whole world and you think it's just that black and white, I think you are deluding yourself. I think there's something's gone wrong with the rise of critical theory in academia that is sure. leading people to get a very false sense of the world and try and shape world events 
to fit their ideology or worse to fit their personal brand online i find especially with the ukraine conflict there were some influencers who were trying to reshape things especially about issues of race there were some incidents that were appalling of um racism on the border as civilians were evacuating um at the early days of the war but they were isolated incidents but then there were people online who have I suppose made an entire brand of themselves about racism and decide to just view everything through that lens yeah and i don't think it always works there are situations where what they say is valid um but at the same time to always use that lens and one's going to be careful of everything i mean like even i suppose us we got to be careful i don't think we do this but not everything can be viewed through the lens of espionage hence why probably this podcast goes on some convergences we, we look at the conversion yeah. of geopolitics espionage terrorism and then i could put intrigue which is kind of the intellectual sort of uh, ideological side of some of these things and i've done that i suppose on purpose is because it's very hard we just did an espionage podcast you know it's very hard to be able to look at world events we would be so constrained in terms of what we could talk about or how we talk about it if it was just or or if we completely tried to detach Mm. our our personal views Mm. of how we see these things yeah 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 and and i think this is the danger of ideology it's the danger maybe even of religious belief if you view everything through such a narrow window um I think it just leads you to a very false perspective. I knew I struggled when I was at university studying film because I'd I'd studied psychology before I did um, film studies. And um, a lot of film academia puts a lot of stock in, I'm sorry, I'm going to go off on a tangent, but a lot of film academia goes on, puts a lot of stock into psychoanalysis. Whilst when you study psychology, psychoanalysis is um, not really highly respected. It's kind of more respected for inspiring works to disprove it than it is as a a proper theory that explains things. There are people who do take psychoanalysis and think, oh, this is amazing. There There is surface validity to certain aspects of psychoanalysis. But on an academic level, really, it's not the be-all and end-all. It's not considered the dominant sort of viewpoint that's correct about psychology. So that's where I struggled with film studies, where a lot of film criticism is steeped in that. And so I struggled with that, and I found it really hard. So anyway, so yeah. that's kind of the so my warning and my ramble about the dangers of just looking at everything through one filter, one lens, you know. Um, yeah. You've got to take a wider perspective on things. It's not to say that there, these things aren't real. There are racial injustices. There are issues around power, and there are people who are occupied and or occupiers, but it's... You know, you've got to put it into big perspective and you've got to, um, and also you've got to not forget your own humanity when looking at these things. So I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> yes. Well, let's, <laughs> let's, I'm, I'm going to ask you to get right back on it in a second. Okay. <laughs> um, let's, let's use your, uh, your college mm-hmm. um, psychology courses here for, for a second, not to sort of pop quiz you here. Tell us, how would you define the idea of cognitive dissonance. What is that? Oh my God, you really have put me on the spot there. Um, you're seeing one thing, but then you kind of are in denial about it and you have to reshape it in a way that's sort of comforting to your belief structure. Maybe that's one way to put it. <laughs> that's exactly correct. Okay, cool. And right. it's, it's a, that is exactly correct. Good job. A plus, you pass. Thank you. <laughs> um, 
That's exactly correct. It's a it's a survival mechanism that the human brain does to to shield it from to shield itself from ideas that would like be very destructive to mm, the to mm. the to the human ego or the id or I don't know whatever the hell Freud would call it, right? And I think we see that in play here where like literally people saying like, oh, babies might've been murdered, but they weren't beheaded. That, that must be like a Zionist conspiracy. It wouldn't be that bad. You know, that's exactly what it is. It's the trying to, that's the cognitive dissonance mm. that we see mm. here, trying to somewhat rationalize or excuse it because to accept the horrific, truly decapitating babies, like just beyond evil. Yeah. Yeah. To sort of fully for for these people to sort of fully accept and internalize the reality of that that's what happened. That's what they did. Mm. You know? And then try to keep the viewpoint that well somehow the Israelis had it coming or you know the oppressor and the oppressed yeah. like your brain would just short circuit yeah. and just implode in on yeah. itself. Yeah. And I'm thinking and now, you know, more more evidence has been has been released about this. But I'm thinking like people trying to say, well, oh, that didn't really happen. Like, I personally haven't seen these videos. I don't want to. I know someone personally mm. who has seen these videos and told me it's real. It happened. And I'm going to get this guy on this podcast to tell everyone he has seen these videos and it's real. It happened. They did it. Mm. Like, this isn't a debate. No, no. And I think the thing is, so... People then will say, well, why don't they release the videos? And you would release the videos and people still wouldn't be able to process it and cope with it. Yeah, people they would still say it's say, AI, it's a deep yeah, fake or yeah. whatever, you know. And and I will say this now. Um, I have actually seen a dead baby. Um, so not long ago, um, earlier this summer, my wife and I went to, and I, and I can't remember the name of the place now, there's a, a medical kind of oddities exhibition you can go to. We have we have something like that in, in, in Philly. It's called the Mudder Museum and it's a whole museum of that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's got all sorts of things. So it's got on on it's got the two-headed snakes to whatever, but right. it also has um babies in jars. I don't know the context of when they were put in jars. I'm assuming it was in Victorian times to study yeah. the anatomy of the baby at different stages of pregnancy. So they had right. them from, you know, uh, uh how many weeks? Th uh, 3 months or whatever to completion, put it that way. So I saw a baby in a jar and I was not expecting this and it really got to me um, and it didn't look real either because when a because um, it, it was so pale that it looked almost plastic but it was real uh, yeah. you know and and like it was just I don't know it was just a horrible thing to see and I've been very lucky to have never seen an actual dead body until that baby so maybe i've seen the worst one but honestly it, it's it's so horrible to think of of a child like that and then to think that a, an adult who has individual agency because this is another thing that really fucks me off about a lot of these yeah. debates is um that those progressives like to remove individual agency from people they don't think people have individual agency and in their almost conspiracy theory beliefs that everything always revolves around to somehow the West's fault, usually. 
that's what they yeah. put it towards and and like they forget that individuals who every individual who picks up a gun who does whatever they still have a choice of whether they pull the trigger or not or if you have a sword you have a choice of whether to behead a baby or not or if you have a yeah. cigarette lighter and lighter fluid you have a choice of whether you want to set that baby on fire yeah and some people that day made that choice yeah and it's yeah. inexcusable it is inexcusable. Just a, just a quick aside here mm. for the for the comments that we've gotten in the past. You know, <laughs> oh, that we're all anti, oh God! That, that we're all anti-Trump and we don't yeah. focus on the left and we don't talk. Here's your episode. Mm. Mm. I know, I know. And actually, just to to balance things out, didn't Trump praise Hamas just the other day? He said they were yeah, very. Yeah, he smart, said Hamas is very smart. He said yeah. that. He said that he's been telling mm. people. He's been asking advisors of his. This was an article that oh, came out God. yesterday. I read it on the train yeah. coming back from DC. It was an article that came out yesterday that um, he's been calling around saying, "Should he come out publicly and call for Bibi Netanyahu to be impeached?" Mind you, that's not a thing that happens in the Israeli system of government. Mm. So, like, you're just like you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, that yeah, should he come out and call for Bibi Netanyahu to be impeached because of whatever? Uh, and it basically stems down to he's mad because he mm. wanted Netanyahu to mm. come out and say that the 2020 election was stolen and not Netanyahu wouldn't do it. One, because that didn't happen. And two, say what you want about Netanyahu. He's not a stupid man. Um, and I think, I mean, there's been very uh, Biden and Netanyahu has, I mean, Biden's response to this, I think has been very clear and, and resolute. Yeah. Not a shred of doubt yeah. of how he sees this and 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 the United States' support for for Israel. Maybe we can get a bit more into this when we talk about the, the wider geopolitics. Yeah, that's our next section actually. So I mean you can segue us into that if you like. So. <laughs> yeah. So uh I think there was a billboard up in Tel Aviv sort of thanking President Biden for his support yeah. for Israel. And uh, Trump has this weird thing where he gets personally offended if Jews aren't like slavishly devoted to him, yeah. you know, yeah. like he's the biggest defender of Israel and like, how dare you not support me? So I think that that's kind of where this is coming from. And in that sort of weird tangent where in the same speech, he was saying like Barack Hussein Obama a mm. bunch. I, don't ask me why the fuck. Mm -hmm. Like, who knows? Um, but yeah, in that in that same thing, he said Hezbollah is very mm. smart. I think any um sensible jew should see trump as a threat because trump is in bed with white supremacists real yes actual white supremacists uh, because i feel like again that term has been a little bit diluted in the last few years um so we're talking about proper neo-nazis some of them have shaved their head as well um who walk around with swash stickers and god knows what else and trump is supported by them and Trump is empowering them. Not all Trump supporters are white supremacists, no. but all white supremacists are Trump supporters. Yeah. And Trump supporters who aren't white supremacists should ask themselves why. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, if he gets back into power, if, if the white supremacy ideology fully takes over, Israel is going to lose its major donor. And I do wonder if that's why... Israel has taken a strategic position to be quite close to Russia in the last few years. Because, if, again, if you look at the rise of progressive politics... And they got played by that in the last week. Yeah, yeah. So if we look at the rise of progressive politics for a second, when I put progressive in question mark, uh, quotation marks, sorry, not question marks, quotation marks. Um, if we are to see those people as the future of Western politics, which yeah. the Democratic Party are definitely going through an identity crisis about this, as is the Labour Party in the UK. Um, so if Trump were to get in and be the dominant white supremacist or whatever, or, or uh, 
progressive candidate like AOC got in and who has her views against um, giving military support to Israel, they will lose their number one donor. There's been a lot of very stupid reactions of mm. the progressive left to this attack. Yeah. I just want to give a point there. I think AOC's statement, I can yeah, bring please. up here and read it if, if I can find it. I yeah. think her statement, to her credit, yeah. was was very good. Yeah, she's a complicated figure. I don't want to totally slate her because I, I, you know, I think she does a lot of good. But I just think when it comes to Israel, because um, she voted against more support for the Iron Dome, didn't she? Yeah. Oh yeah, historically, yeah, but. To give her credit that, like, mm. in this moment, mm. she was she was good. I have it. You found the statement from AOC. Yeah. So she said to her, to, to her credit, mm. and I mean, her stance on, on you know, backing Israel with, with, with military and stuff has been, you know, I think I think sensible people could 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 disagree on mm. on mm. whether or not her her positions have been good on that. OK, but her statement in response to this attack, I just want to mm. read it here. Uh, Today is devastating for all those seeking a lasting peace and respect for human rights in Israel and Palestine. I condemn Hamas's attack in the strongest possible terms. No child and family should ever endure this kind of violence and fear, and this violence will not solve the ongoing oppression and occupation in the region. An immediate ceasefire and de-escalation is urgently needed to save lives. I don't agree with that last sentence. Um, I don't think we're kind of like, I, I think we need to punish Hamas at this point. But the rest of that, yeah, I think she's, I think she's right. Um, you know, it would have been very easy for her to say, you know, mm. well, the 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 legacy of colonization, mm. and you know, these mm. are the oppressed people who were that many of people in 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 in, in the left have, but she didn't yeah. she didn't say that. Yeah, to her well, no credit to her there because uh, I think yeah. you know she's doing a good job in that regard. So yeah, so just back to this thing where I think there's been this bizarre relationship between Russia and Israel, and I do wonder if Israel have uh, were looking at the bigger picture for themselves and thinking you know can we completely rely on america in the future um but at the same time they had this very problematic relationship well, at least the government had this very problematic relationship with trump and um you know again i think that's equally short-sighted as well um yeah and I, I still wonder whether the provocative move of moving the american embassy really actually benefited israel i felt like it was just stirring the pot and regional tensions that ultimately backfires on on the jewish population in israel i think that decision was i mean i'll get to functionally here in a second but i think that decision was largely just for uh right-wing jewish donors in the U.S., mm. um, to sort of make them feel like they 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 had a win. I mean, functionally, yes, the embassy is in Jerusalem. Mm. All of the important functions of said embassy are still in Tel Aviv, in the same building that used to be the embassy. You know, is really just kind of a just for show. Yeah, <laughs> that that was done. Yeah, totally. Well, as we've already sort of touched upon the geopolitics, I'm just gonna draw on some key points from some articles from the Atlantic, BBC, CNBC and The Guardian just to kind of draw everything together just to give people a clear picture of um, kind of what's at play here. So Israel blames Tehran for orchestrating the Hamas attacks and they believe it's aiming to disrupt the US-led efforts to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Iran's goal is to destabilize the region, making it difficult for Saudi Arabia to negotiate with Israel. Achieving a historic Saudi-Israeli 
normalization deal has been one of President Biden's top foreign policy priorities, something he'd be able to highlight when running for re-election next year. Saudi Arabia seeks foreign investment, technological advancements from Israel and US defense guarantees, civilian nuclear power and progress in the Israeli-Palestinian talks. Um, and obviously the start of this now potential war in the region or war in the region has now changed the risk calculations and it's pretty much scuppered that deal at this time. That might change, but we will see. Um, the US response to Hamas to the Hamas offensive indicates a commitment to Israel's defense and readiness to provide additional equipment and resources, including air defense and munitions. A fleet of warships, including an aircraft carrier, has been dispatched to demonstrate support for Israel's defense and deter potential involvement of other countries or militant groups, particularly Iran. The deployment of the fleet is more seen as a show of force um, than anything else. And the US gives $3.8 billion in aid to Israel annually. And any additional funding for Israel may require congressional approval. And, uh, and that might compete with US commitments to Ukraine. So there's an interesting little sticking point there, which we might come back to in a minute. Um, in response to the attack, Ryder initially showed concern about the diplomatic consequences and its foreign ministry emphasized the dangers of continued occupation and provocations against Palestinian sanctities. And Qatar has held Israel solely responsible for the escalation due to its violations of Palestinian rights. And diplomatic efforts are now uh, are underway with Turkey and Egypt acting as mediators in the short term to try and bring a resolution to the conflict. Iran's influence on Hamas is evident as the highly coordinated multi-pronged operation required extensive planning and training likely provided by Iran and Hezbollah, but that's obviously not confirmed at this point. Um, and then the attack apparently has been a, a point of pride for Iran as Tehran's parliament's members chanted death to Israel. And... Um, Hamas has been attempting to send a message to Arab countries, particularly those who have signed the Abraham Accords, warning them about Israel's ability to protect them. Uh, so while the attack may bring some satisfaction to some Palestinians, it will come at a high cost for Hamas, and his long-term stability is now in question. Hamas's actions have rewritten the rules of engagement, making Israel's response complicated, especially with the Israeli hostages in Gaza. Uh, negotiations for the hostages release, as you mentioned earlier, will be complex. And an Israeli ground incursion into Gaza hasn't happened yet, has it? I think it's it's on the cusp. No, it's on the cusp. They've been to, as of as of this morning. Mm. I I had CNN mm. on a bit before we started recording. The Israelis were telling Gazans to start moving south. Yeah, uh, which yeah. probably means something's coming. Something's coming. Yeah, and obviously Hezbollah have expressed support for Hamas, citing the attack as a response to Israeli occupation and uh, a message against normalization with Israel. So obviously this normalization deal is a bit of a contentious point in, in the Middle East at the moment. I mean, yeah, just talking freely for a moment, I think like the problem with the Middle East, um, Israel's been a very convenient bogeyman for many regimes for a long period of time. And sure. I think Yeah, for that, 40 years. Yeah, and I think that has made any peace deal very difficult i mean i've got relatives from iraq um i've got friends from iran i've met people from saudi arabia and um all of them have stories of some sort about um suspected israeli spy rings and how these israeli spy rings tend to crop up usually around 
key political moments in the country um, and are tend to be used to either instill fear or distract people from some um, issue that's contentious in that country. And I think we even yeah. talked about it with Turkey and the Turkish elections and Israeli spying was suddenly connected to the opposition quite conveniently. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I don't think that's particularly healthy and I think it has led to... Um, a big rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Israeli sentiment that kind of goes beyond the Israel-Palestine kind of conflict there. Um, so Matt, I don't know if you have any sort of thoughts on on the sort of geopolitical picture. We haven't talked about Russia yet. We'll come to Russia in a minute. But Okay. Mm. Uh, well, as far as the broader geopolitical issues that are perhaps were the rationale for this attack, right? You know, um, I think some of the initial reporting right after the attack was that this was to sort of derail um, the coming kind of rapprochement between mm -hmm. Israel and, and Saudi Arabia, which is part of the um, Abraham Accords, which was a uh, series of diplomatic sort of, yeah, uh, deals that began under the Trump administration that granted Arab states, largely Gulf Arab states, you know, uh, the Emiratis, uh, Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait, mm. And you know the the biggest one, Saudi Arabia, uh, that would grant them a a series of um, packages, benefits, mm, mm. you know, which is essentially just say arms deals to help them to entice them to to normalize relations with mm, Israel. Mm. That seemed to work quite a bit. Um, there have been there's been you know lots of praise and criticism for the Abraham Accords for for various reasons. Um, I'm not sure really how I how I come down on that. My instinct would be to say that, you know, a massive arms deal in exchange for normalizing relations with Israel is probably at least the spirit of it is not the best. Mm. But you know, okay, I can also be a realist. Yeah. Um. So the thought initially was that this was to sort of derail that coming rapprochement as part of the Abraham Accords between Israel and and Saudi Arabia. The other sort of reason that has been given, I think, by Hamas itself, that it's it's retaliation for um, incursions that Israeli troops made into the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque over the summer. Um, and that's the uh, third holiest site in, in Islam behind Mecca and, and Medina. Uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is is on the Temple Mount in, in, in Jerusalem, also the site of King David's Temple, the holiest site in Judaism. So the Al-Aqsa Mosque is built on the site where it's believed that Muhammad ascended into um, yes, paradise. Yes, I remember that story, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, Israeli troops um, made an incursion into the mosque over the summer. You know, very kind of inflammatory, a provocative move for, for Palestinians and all Muslims. Um, so they said it was, it was a response to that. Seems quite of an extreme response, just for that alone. Um I think in in all likelihood, it's probably a combination of of these various factors. The question of Iranian involvement is still kind of out. Like when I was talking to Philip Smythe a couple of days ago, like I said, he's consulted on active measures with me for years, and Hezbollah and other Iranian proxies are at the core of the plot. So like I couldn't I couldn't write these novels without his help. It wouldn't be possible mm, for me mm, to do it. Mm. And I said to him, I said, Philip, if I called you, because we were talking about, you know, whether or not the Iranians knew about it, how involved were they, did they, like, approve mm, it, greenlight mm. it, order Hamas to do it, whether or not that happened. And I said, Philip, if I called you and I said, hey, in, you know, in this volume of active measures, I'm going to have uh, a thousand plus Hamas fighters uh, 
breach the border fence and run across into Israeli territory and execute the biggest slaughter of Jews since 1945. And the Iranians won't have known about it in advance. Mm. Philip would say, Matt, that's stupid. Like, that's not how it works. The Iranians would 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 know. They would they would at least sign off on it. I have a hard time believing that Hamas would execute an attack of this scale without the Iranians knowing about it. And I said knowing about it. That doesn't mean they ordered it. That doesn't mean the degree to which mm. Hamas is controlled on a on a on a micro level, on a tactical level by Iran is something better for Philip to 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 talk to us about, but I have a hard time seeing that that that's a possibility that they mm. wouldn't have been involved. Mm. That said, on the other sort of far scale of that, that you know, there's been reporting that this is the beginning of some sort of multi-front assault on the Israelis. You know, there's going to be uh, a massive attack by Hezbollah in in, in the north. Um, that there's going to be you know a third intifada uh, in the West Bank. There's going to be riots in East Jerusalem. You know that this is all coming. Um, I don't know. I don't know how much I buy that. I think the longer we go from Saturday without a second, you know, uh, front being opened up along Israel's northern border, the 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 less that seems plausible in my head. Mm. That's what this is. But um, maybe it's more wishful thinking on Hamas's part. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. I know. Like, um, there's a uh, uh, there's a Shia militia group in Afghanistan called um, Liwa Fatimayun, right, which are um, sort of subordinated to the Iranians. And they were sort of saying, like, they had this kind of group, you know, like, let me let me let me get in there. Let me let me get at them, you know, basically mm, asking mm. the Iranians for gas money to bring them over mm. to to so they could join in the fighting, you know, mm, from mm, Afghanistan. Mm. Um, I mean, this is like this this attack. um it's such a like you look at what they did. That is a fantasy of 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 Hamas fighters. This is the kind of fantasy that they recruit people from. You know, join us and you'll be able to you know cross into occupied mm. uh, you know Zionist villagers and you know rape and murder and and butcher civilians. I mean, not to be too crude here, this is something that Hamas fighters literally masturbate to. Well, funny you should say that. Um... When the, uh, do you remember the 2021 um, situation, um, there were lots of protests in London and there was these these uh, pro-Palestinian guys driving around in a car with um, loudspeakers shouting out, we will rape their women. And it was like this sort yeah. of like thing to rape Israeli women. And obviously a lot of rape has occurred apparently. And there's something about um, raping women in war that just seems to constantly happen and, and and you know i know there's been many conferences about it i know angelina jolie and william Hague talked about it um yeah at some uh event but um you know i don't think hamas got that memo about not raping women but yeah, yeah. to underscore that this is a complete fantasy mm. sexual fantasy that that many of those fighters fulfilled in this attack they raped women they also this hasn't really been reported this was shared with me they rape bodies yeah, Jesus Christ. Do you know what? There was, there's a lot of talk. Bodies of children. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of talk, um, and I need to properly go back into this, but about sexual repression and violence. 
Um, That's a big part of Hamas. Yeah. What is it? And why people join. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And and, uh, I need to find the appropriate guest and psychologist to really go into detail about that. Um, There was somebody I used to respect who lost the plot over COVID and talked about it. So sadly, I can't get him on now. But... um, you know that yeah sexual oppression and violence kind of go hand in hand and you see it with these incels and what have you as well i'm not an expert on this mm. but i can say something toward mm. this effect yeah. of, of what of this may being a motivating cause for them so in 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 islam it's the groom's family that has to pay a dowry to the bride's family for the wedding mm-hmm. right and in gaza if which is you know has been described as an open air prison, and I think that's 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 warranted. Um, people living in grinding poverty, these young men with with no sort of aspects to have a job, um, to to have any kind of economic security. If you can't afford a bridal dowry, you can't get married. Mm. And if you live in a strict Islamist society, you can't get married. You can't have sex. And for a young man, if you can't have sex, what's the point of living? You know. So yeah, to your point, that sort of this, this sexual repression aspect is is a motivating factor for many of them. Yeah, that's that that's why. Mm. Well, <laughs> let's look at Russia. <laughs> okay. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. No. No. No link to sexual repression in Russia, but um, Russia. Uh, so. Yeah, there's been some talk about whether there's a Russian connection to events. And so I'm going to just draw on a couple of articles from The Hill and The Times of Israel. So um, evidence for Russian involvement in the atrocity is circumstantial but present. Um, Putin benefited from levering, uh, leveraging Hamas to incite terror and generate an Israeli response to distract the US government from supporting Ukraine. And he's used, and it's alleged that he's used Iran to achieve this end. You know, Russia's relationship with Iran, they are a principal supporter of Iran. So it does suggest something more nefarious in their relationship there. Um, So there there definitely is a plausible connection between Iran and Hamas and Russia. Um, So Hamas leaders apparently traveled to Moscow back in, uh, in March 2023, where according to the Russian foreign ministry, their meeting touched on Russia's unchanged position and support for a just solution to the Palestinian problem. And then more recently, Hamas's Politburo chief was in Moscow as recently as September the 10th. Um, and at the time, Heliel Frisch, I think I hope I got that name correct, um, who's a senior fellow at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, um, he he proposed that the meeting was to signal Moscow's displeasure with Israel, uh, perhaps in relation to Ukraine, because Israel's had this sort of weird relationship with Russia with regards to Ukraine. And apparently recently this close relationship has been strained because Israel has now been sending humanitarian aid to Ukraine. They haven't sent any military aid as weapons and things because the Iron Dome, for example, would be a very useful tool in the war against Russia in Ukraine. But um, but obviously Israel have not done that. Um, and then one other interesting thing is apparently members of the Wagner Group um, who left Belarus for Africa may have participated in the training of Hamas militants. And certainly the assault tactics and use of small um, unmanned aerial vehicles to drop explosives onto vehicles and other targets has the hallmarks of Wagner training. So there is something there. Um, and obviously President Zelensky... President Zelensky and the Ukrainians 
have also echoed this. And I think Ukrainian intelligence has sort of been saying something on these lines. Yes, as Zelensky said on, on French television, France number two television, um, he said, we're certain that Russia is supporting in one way or another Hamas operations. And the current crisis bears witness to the fact that Russia is really seeking to carry out destabilizing actions all over the world. And the thing is, so it's not implausible. I mean, if you see now how so with the with regards to USA to Ukraine, um, right? If America wants to give more money to Israel, that will take away from Ukraine most likely. It won't. It means that Ukraine won't get any additional support. And I know recently Republicans have been um, trying their very best to to sort of um, kind of limit Ukrainian aid or aid to Ukraine. And on top of that, in Europe, you've got leaders are changing in certain countries now, and some countries who have more pro-Russia leanings are now stopping their aid towards Ukraine. Um, and then if you have a, a full-blown crisis in the Middle East, which America will pay attention to massively, it will take attention away from Ukraine. So, um, And obviously Russia is doing very badly there, but Putin's entire political future does seem to run on on being successful in Ukraine. So it's definitely um, worth considering. Um, there's definitely no solid evidence to say it's definitely happened, but, um, you know, let's use our imagination for a moment. Um, it definitely is possible. I'm going to be a bit cautious on this yep, yep. i think um putin has come out and said that you know this is the result of a failure of u.s foreign policy in the middle east and that palestinians deserve an independent state of their own keep in mind putin is first and foremost a troll mm -hmm. oh yeah um he also has a vested interest in his relationship with the iranians they depend on them they've come to depend on the iranians a great deal for drone technology that they use in uh, Ukraine. They're also part of just this general kind of axis that is opposed to the Western liberal democratic order mm. of which um, Iran and, and Hezbollah and Hamas and these other groups all kind of represent, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I know there was some... Uh, so in the opening sort of move of this attack, um, Hamas used dropped explosives from from drones onto these uh, watchtowers along the border. And people sort of pointed out that that's very similar to tactics that the Russians have used in Ukraine and sort of said, though, that's evidence that, that the Russians trained Hamas. I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, just because they use the same tactics doesn't mean they learned it no, no. from the Russians. Well, the Ukrainians use those tactics too, so, yeah. Right, and I mean, ISIS used, back in, what, 2014 or whatever, ISIS was using drones to drop grenades into the open turrets of Humvees, you know? Um, so that's not a, that, that's not a, I don't think that's really proof of, of much. Uh, whether there's some kind of covert funding arms that are passed that are laundered through the Iranians or something mm. maybe, mm. but I think there's also a sort of simplistic desire of people in the West as to see all the quote unquote bad guys lined up together, working together in cahoots together. And the world is just a lot more complicated than that. Um, I think Russia is certainly, um, certainly would like to exploit this to sort of take take the the eyes of the west off of mm. off of ukraine oh yeah yeah and spread disinformation too yeah right of course and there's been i mean if you go on twitter it's mm. a fucking shithole yeah 
um, <laughs> thank you. Disinformation. <laughs> thank you, Elon Musk. Thanks, thanks, Elon. <laughs> um, sure. Mm. So that that that's a that's a motivator for them. Um, and, you know, and yeah, you've seen Republicans like Senator Tom Cotton said, you know, we should take all the aid that we're giving to Ukraine and send it to the Israelis. Mind you, that a lot of stuff that we're giving to the Ukraine, the Israelis don't need. Mm. You know, um, the Israelis have a very modern professional uh, armed forces that they just they don't they don't they don't need the stuff mm. that the Ukrainians need. You know, this like apples to oranges. Um, I would also say that if a country can only deal with one crisis at a time it's not a superpower mm. um and as and as as there's our secretary of defense lloyd austin said in brussels yesterday that the united states can walk and chew gum at the same time mm. Mm. um and that's absolutely what we have to do now i wonder if citizens of britain and america can walk and chew gum at the same time because i started to wonder well that. <laughs> you know what i think i think that's an issue of the media, there's kind of a, a, a lack of object permanence, mm, you know, like mm. right now, yeah, the headlines are Hamas and Israel. And there's sort of a belief that if Ukraine isn't the headline every single day, that that means that we're not aiding them, that we're not giving them support, that those, you know, arm shipments aren't going in through Poland anymore, mm. that, you know, our advisors and stuff on the ground aren't still doing what they were doing a week ago. Yes, they are. It's just not the lead story on CNN. You know, just because you don't see it happening in front of your face every day doesn't mean it's not still being handled. Mm. Um, you know, that being said, yeah, that there does need to be a concerted effort to not lose sight of Ukraine and this other thing, too. Um, and I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not super worried about that right now. I think if, 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 you know, the Biden administration recognizes the issues of, of both of these things, also the Israelis, frankly, just don't, they don't need the same extent of support that the Ukrainians need. And a, a lot of the, the Navy has, um, pre-positioned stockpiles, um, at several sites across Israel and has had them there for, 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 for decades um so a, a lot of the support that they are need are already in the region mm -hmm. thank you for that well let's move on to the israeli response and sort of allegations of intelligence failure by israel security services so i'm going to just draw on some articles from the guardian the times of israel and the new york times and they'll be linked in the show notes um so key points really hamas's attack was a success due to several security failures by israel which include a failure to monitor key communication channels used by palestinian attackers an over-reliance on easily disabled border surveillance equipment, um, clustering commanders in vulnerable border bases and accepting Hamas's assertion of non-preparation at face value. Israeli intelligence underestimated the Hamas threat, focusing on other potential dangers. Um, and the border surveillance system heavily relied on remote technology, leading to overconfidence. And that sort of technology could easily be sort of hacked or, or just sort of blown up by drones as it was. Um, Hamas exploited those vulnerabilities by targeting cellular towers with drones, rendering the surveillance equipment useless. 
Israeli security chiefs made an incorrect assumption about the extent of the threat Hamas posed to Israel from Gaza, and they focused on other potential threats. I think there was quite a large proportion of the Israeli army focusing on the West Bank at the time, I believe. Yes. And then, and apparently Israeli intelligence assessed that Hamas was deterred and seeking to avoid another war with Israel. And the situation combined with communication problems caused by those drone strikes hindered a coordinated response. Now, there's been a story also about about Egypt reportedly warning Israel about possible attacks from Gaza three days before the Hamas assault. Michael McCow, the chair of the US Foreign Affairs Committee, disclosed the warning after an intelligence briefing, um, although the warning level remains unclear. And Benjamin Netanyahu, though, he, he has said that, uh, that this is fake news, to quote Trump, <laughs> and that he didn't get any advance warning from Cairo. So, yeah, it's an interesting one, that one. And it's also been reported that Hamas has been leading a years-long campaign to fool Israel. And uh, there's a source close to Hamas reveals that the group conducted a lengthy campaign to deceive Israel to thinking it didn't desire an armed conflict and could be satisfied with economic incentives for calm. And apparently Hamas employed unprecedented intelligence tactics, creating a false impression of disinterest. Part of their training, apparently Hamas constructed a mock Israeli community for training purposes, and um, Israel somehow didn't see that, or they might have misinterpreted what those mock communities were. And um, this deceptive strategy has allowed Hamas to project an image of reluctance to engage in military action against Israel. And apparently Hamas were surprised at the level of success that they had in this operation. So, yeah, there's some interesting things there. So potential intelligence warning. Somehow Israel has not seen Hamas training. Maybe Hamas trained in another country, possibly Iran or somewhere else. Um, And then obviously you've got Netanyahu, who's now in arse covering mode saying i didn't get any intelligence what are you talking about so there's some interesting things kind of going on here so matt i don't know if you've got any insight or thoughts you wish to share on all this a couple things yeah i'll tell you um an interesting story from Mm. from from dc so at um david mccloskey's book signing there he was in conversation with david ignatius who i'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with he's a an author himself and a a columnist at the washington Mm. post Mm. and sort of like the unofficial chronicler of the cia so of course, I mean, McCloskey's book is about Russia, um, but near the end of the discussion, uh, Ignatius asked him, I mean, when, when when McCloskey was a CIA analyst, he focused on Syria, the Levant, Hezbollah. So this is kind of in his wheelhouse a bit and, and asked him, um, you know, about the extent of how such an intelligence failure is possible. Mm, you know, how mm. could an attack of this scale just be missed? Um and McCloskey offered this, and he said, you know, I'm not, I'm not reading intelligence anymore. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But he offered this possible uh, explanation. He asked, he was wondering if it's possible that any um, Israeli uh, human assets inside um, Hamas's military council, inside their military wing, could have been um, turned mm. by Hamas mm-hmm. back into doubles. And fed, you know, false information back to their Israeli controllers Ooh. that, you know, oh, everything's fine. You know, Ooh. we're not we're mm. not planning to come over the fence. You have nothing to worry about. Again, I don't know, but that's that that mm. that tracks. Well, and the revision of the founding document in 2017 to appear more moderate. Yeah. You know? yeah. Right. That's certainly possible. Um, as far as the involvement of the Egyptians, um, there does seem to be some truth that 
The Egyptians contacted the Israelis and said that Hamas was up to something big. Mm. Then again, it could be just so that assessment is just so general and unspecific in its nature. You can't do anything with that. You know, I'm reminded of the famous uh, President's Daily Brief article from just before 9-11, Bin Laden determined to strike in U.S., which says Bin Laden's determined to strike in the U.S., but okay, what what do we do to stop that? You know, it doesn't say these operatives are, you know, going to board these planes in these cities to hit these targets, you know, that you can work with. Um, So it could be something as, as simple as there was something on the board. Um, within the threat matrix, you know, that mm. the Israelis had, but nothing specific to to do much about it. But it's, I mean, the number of people that would have had to have touched this op mm. uh, at some level, considering how long it did, it's really just kind of kind of stunning to me mm. that they that they pulled this off. Yeah. So I think it's also important to look at, you know, what what the intelligence community could be doing now to assist the Israelis, right? So there's you know, probably around 20 Americans that are being held hostage mm. in Gaza, potentially. Um, I know it's, it's been reported that, that that the FBI is on the ground. Um, I mean, they're, they kind of have uh, the responsibility for the federal government for hostage uh, negotiation mm. um, issues. Uh, there would be a FEST team, a foreign emergency support team. That's an interagency group coordinated by the State Department that helps sort of protect and care for American citizens in crises overseas. Mm. I would also, and I'm just speculating here, um, that there's probably a JSOC task force on the ground mm. in 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 Syria. Uh, when I was talking to Philip Smythe, he was talking about some planes that took off from the DC area and landed in, in Cyprus. Um, make of that what you will. But uh, um, there's probably a JSOC task force involved. This hasn't been reported, nor should it be. Well, a submarine just left Faslane yesterday, US one, with the um, special forces module on it. Um, sure. And you've also had, uh, we've had B1 bombers arrive in the UK in just the last few days as well. Yeah. I mean, um, that's yeah. all just, mm. that's all just larger, probably, that's part of a larger sort of contingency mm. planning to be safe. I mean, mm. I think the, um, the uh, uh, was it Gerald Ford? strike group has been pushed into the eastern mediterranean again that's just for contingencies and probably also a warning to hezbollah Mm. to not get cute yeah with anything um the makeup of that task force i think is probably pretty interesting so um you would probably have a collection of of operators taken from our special mission units which is seal team six and and delta force that are there um, I don't think you would see them like, let's say you had specific actionable intelligence that there are American citizens being held in, you know, this tunnel. Right. Um, I, I don't think you would see Delta Force go into Gaza and do it, especially when, you know, like you have uh, a local government that has a very um, well-trained and professional special operations force, mm. uh, Syriat Metcal, that can go in and do it. Um, I think they would advise the Israelis sort of on, you know, coordination and stuff um news of american combat casualties in gaza would not be received well here um the important thing that we're probably definitely working with in this um this plane that flew into cyprus is probably exactly that um there's a unit based in fort belvoir it's called the first capabilities uh uh integration Mm, group mm. And that's subordinate to the JSOC uh, Intelligence Brigade, the Joint Special Operations Command. Um, that unit's been known by 
a couple different names over the years. Mm. Um, the Intelligence Support Activity or Task Force Orange. Um, there's a book that Michael Smith put out a few years ago. I think it's had a couple updates since then. It's called yeah. Killer Elite. Yeah. Um, oh, that yes. book is a giant. Op- yeah. yeah, yeah. That book is a giant OPSEC violation, but it's very interesting. Mm. Um, it sort of goes into the history and the tactics of this unit. Mm. But they specialize in um, tactical signals intelligence collection on the ground, getting into really hard targets that like um, uh, cyberspace operators at Fort Meade couldn't access through, you know, through the internet. Mm. Um that's I'm sure they're involved with the Israelis in trying to to use those very sophisticated and highly classified sources and methods to pinpoint specific locations of I mean not just not just American hostages, any hostages mm. um, that are on the ground in Gaza for then um, for then uh, uh, Israeli special forces that are quite capable. Sayeret Metcal is their equivalent to, to to Delta Force and their naval naval commando unit. It's called Shiatet 13. They're sort of similar to to uh, SEAL Team Six, who would who would go in and um, try to recover them alive. Mm, mm. Excellent. Well, thank you yeah. very much for all that. That's yeah, it's brilliant. Well, look, let's um, let's come to our sort of final section. So, uh, really, it's just sort of online reactions. I mean, you know. You and I have sort of uh, talked about, and we've sort of discussed it a little bit earlier, about how we're sort of disappointed and sort of disgusted by the reaction of some people. Um, and there are people on social media I've followed that have I've now unfollowed who posted all sorts of horrible things. And um, there's an article that you, you flagged up by Gal Backerman called The Left Abandoned Me, which I'll just quickly summarise and we can talk a bit about sure. it. So in that piece, uh, he, he expressed his disappointment of some elements of the political left for which he perceived as a lack of empathy and understanding of Jewish suffering in the wake of recent violence. Beckerman felt that the ideological rigidity has prevented some from recognising the tragedy. And Beckerman went on to say that as a Jew, he has been deeply affected by the violence and he felt abandoned in a time of pain by those who he considered his people, who are supposed to care about human suffering regardless of country or background. And then Beckerman ends this piece uh, by drawing a historical parallel between past anti-Semitic violence, such as the Kishinev pogrom in 1903, which was an anti-Jewish riot that took place in Kishinev in Russia, in which locals murdered 49 Jews, injured 500, raped Jewish women, that always seems to come up, and destroyed 1,500 homes. So Beckman feels that recent events um, have highlighted this sort of reoccurring theme of Jewish suffering throughout history, and they've left him re-evaluating his beliefs about Jewish victimhood, which he had previously resisted. There is another complimentary piece by a British author called James Bloodworth, and it's titled As Long As They Hate Us, They Must Be Right. I'm not going to go into it in great detail, but I do recommend people read that one as well, because I think it gives some good historical context to where some of these uh, ideas have expressed themselves before. So um, he, he... Bloodworth recalls a reaction to the Iranian fatwa issued against novelist Salman Rushdie back in 1989. There were some liberals who focused on legitimate grievances and cultural sensitivities instead of condemning the death sentence. And then also with the um, with Slobodan Milosevic and his ethnic cleansing campaigns against Bosnia and Kosovo, parts of the left 
used um, their rhetoric to kind of talk about both sides and they were obscuring the issue and they failed to condemn the atrocities and some even went to say that it was somehow a NATO provocation. And I will just add as a side note, a really good friend of mine, his father was murdered by Milosevic's men in Bosnia. Mm. You know, uh, my friend, I've known him since 1994 and, um, and I think it was back in... I think it was that in, was around that time. Yeah, he well, he was evacuated out of um, he was yeah. smuggled out of Bosnia by some local church group. I think it was he, his brother, and his mother. Um, and only in I think it was two thousand six that did UN um, some UN group find his father's body, and he had to fly out to Bosnia to go and identify his dad. Wow. And they identified his dad by the clothes he was wearing on the day he went missing. You know. That's the reality of this sort of shit, people. Um, you know, this stuff is horrible. Um, and, and there are people on the left, uh, especially people like Tony Benn, for example, who's a bit of a darling of the left, but even he was denying um, the war in Bosnia and blamed it on NATO. Um, and then we had it after September the 11th as well, where a lot of left rhetoric was used to blame US policies as the sole reason for the violence and downplaying the severity of the attack. And, um, you know, during 9-11 and the aftermath of the War of Terror is where this thing happened, which um, the first ever episode I ever did of this podcast was titled The Double Bind. And I did an interview with Meredith Tax. And Meredith Tax um, came up with this theory that, well, she came up with this um, uh, phrase, the double bind, which sort of describes this problematic relationship between the Anglo-American left and the um, Islamic right. And, um, and it's sort of, again, she highlights a lot of it does stem to, from this sort of like um, anti-colonial kind of uh, part of the left where they want to um, see uh, all, all sort of uh, Muslim groups as sort of victims of US oppression and, and, and colonization and stuff like that. And, um, and they kind of totally then uh, overlook all the terrible uh, violence that those groups like al-Qaeda have committed. And even the dreadful, like, um, you know, sexism, homophobia, and various other appalling things that some individuals who were members of al-Qaeda, who then the left put on stages, um, yeah. you know, and celebrated them because they were talking about Guantanamo Bay and how bad Guantanamo Bay was. There's a man who's a particular case in point where he apparently was the press officer for Al-Qaeda and facilitated that famous interview with CNN and Bin Laden. Um, and he ended up being arrested and ended up in Guantanamo Bay for a while. And he did, unfortunately, get... Well, he reportedly got abused in Guantanamo Bay because some of that's in dispute now. But um, when he, he w was released and came back to the UK, people on the left were putting him on, on all sorts of platforms. But if you read his biography, you see he was very pro-Taliban. He was a member of al-Qaeda. Um, and he uh, was very... Uh, homophobic and um, sexist and various other ugly things that yeah. one would have thought the left would care about. So, you know, uh, and Bloodworth does also talk about the Stop the War Coalition and some of their stances on things, and obviously particularly the Ukraine-Russia conflict recently, where they're constantly um, taking on anti-Western positions and, again, blaming it on NATO and expansionism and, you know, don't look at Russia being of the cause of it. So... Um, yeah, it's a really, really interesting article. As long as they hate us, they must be right. I think Bloodworth touched on a lot of really interesting points there. So, Matt, sorry about all that. There's a bit of a word uh, salad thrown in your direction there. But, um, yeah, is there any thoughts you have on, on, on all these sort of online reactions? 
apart from my sort of uh, curious reaction to people who say that, you know, words are violence and are hyper concerned mm. with microaggressions mm. and, and such, you know, things, how they then do the mental gymnastics to excuse the rape and murder of children. Um, it's very odd to me, but, uh, I think, I mean, I consider myself a progressive person, um, not like that, but, uh, how I think there's just a real black and white dogma about the oppressor and the oppressed mm. and there's no that leaves no kind of room for nuance and i think there's probably also at play here a real desire of of some progressives in the west to make amends for past i want to say atrocities of their countries that have this legacy of 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 colonialism yeah you know that so overcorrects itself to the point that they then excuse the actions of People who were who who were colonized that do horrific things. I think you're spot on there. I think you're spot on there. I think I've I see that. Yeah. I think I think that has a lot to do with it. And it's it's very it's very misguided. It's mm. very kind of childish mm. and 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 elementary in this view of the world. And it's also self defeating. You know, I mean, there's one person who's kind of a family friend who I saw on on social media, kind of basically saying, you know, the Israelis are like the abusers playing the playing to be the victims here. And I said, you know, as one as one man who's a member of the LGBTQ community speaking to another, Hamas would murder you and me mm. in a heartbeat. Mm. You know, like these people are not your friends. Um, you can you can believe in in justice and equality and and fundamentally wanting a desire to to make life better for people around the world mm. without finding a way to excuse the just wanton slaughter of innocent civilians. I just want to make one more point here um, to just, I think it's important that listeners sort of keep in mind the scale of what this attack was for the Israelis, mm. right? So Israel's a very small country. It's 9 million people geographically about the size of, of, of New Jersey. So losing 1,200 people to them is the equivalent of you losing uh, 40,000 Americans or about 9,000 Britons in 24 hours yeah and i were just asked to consider like how would we react mm. to such an attack oh yeah yeah definitely yeah. definitely yeah i know i remember the london bridge attacks only a few years ago and um you know there were there's still a lot of details that haven't come out um but there's things i've heard about how people would again treated very badly and stuff and and there might have even been a decapitation or two um and um yeah and i don't recall the people who have pissed me off online recently i don't recall them being so um yeah sort of so uh blinded cavalier, cavalier yeah so sort of weirdly switched off from things and cold um so you know i guess when it happens to you <laughs> in your own backyard you tend to view it differently than when it's uh you know, thousands of miles away. Um, and it shouldn't be like that, you know, because uh, I like to, I always used to like to think that uh, a bit like the author of that piece we talked about earlier, that the left, uh, uh, my people, and that they're able to um, feel things for people who are not of the same culture, not of the same background. And when in situations where you see people who you think are like that behaving 
in a very different matter. It is very disappointing. Um, I felt politically homeless for a while. The Corbyn era really um, right. made me feel very sort of isolated and stuff. And um, and and again, over the last few days, just looking at that reaction was just horrible. It was ugly. Um, but anyway, all that's a distraction from the real issues, which is the the violence against Israeli citizens. And you know, we've got one thousand three hundred dead, many about one hundred and fifty who've been kidnapped, whose fate is unknown. And um, frankly, it's been an appalling. Uh, you know, a few days in human history. And, um, you know, I really wish that events like this would bring about something positive, but it's very hard to see that. So there we go. So Matt, thank you very much for your time today. It has been a very cathartic chat. And, um, you know, and, and uh, I feel like I've learned a lot of things through this chat. And, you know, it's it's. I've been. I was very nervous about this conversation because when talking about Israel Palestine, it's such a, a loaded topic, um, and sadly, it's a topic where people is very easy to upset a lot of people. So, if anybody is listening and they are upset by anything that we've said, I apologise. Um, I hope that with what we have said, we have found ways to justify our positions, and we certainly will provide links from where we're coming from and things. Um, I don't run this podcast to seek prov to provoke people. I'm, I'm not looking for people to get pissed off. I'm just trying to put out, re you know, quality information. Um, and sometimes that information does go against things that are comfortable for us. But I think sometimes it has yeah. to. So, so um, you know, truth to power, as they say. <laughs> I would say yeah. also mm. consider this part one of our coverage of this um i think next week when when i have uh, philip's mic on he'll yeah. have a lot of things to say to get really in the weeds about mm. the nature of the relationship between iran and its proxies that could really kind of shed light onto how mm. and why this happened mm. and and mm. why now yeah yeah okay cool well i look forward to hearing that so thank you again matt you look after yourself you. um we you will too. reconvene next week um to do extra shot because sadly there won't be an extra shot today. Um, I, I, I think we, I just wanted to throw all my attention at this this episode, um, yeah. and and I think it's going to be nearly two hours. So, <laughs> so hopefully you got your extra shot within it. I think it's worth it though. Yeah. I think it's worth it though. I think it has been definitely. You know. So yeah. Uh, so yeah. Thank you and thank you everybody for listening. And um, we will catch you on the next extra shot which is for our patreon subscribers and the next espresso martini and on other upcoming podcasts over the next few weeks so yep. take care bye everyone thanks for listening this is secrets and spies 